Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 439 featuring Halsey Bergan, who is an incredible artist and technologist. Uh, as you guys can tell, I have uh, been, um, I am very hoarse because <laughs> I've been SIGGRAPHing hard and been doing a lot of stuff to SIGGRAPH, so it's been really rough, uh, but I'm dedicated to making sure that I get this podcast intro out, and it was a really amazing one with Halsey. Uh, he is, uh, uh, like I said, an artist and technologist. He's done some incredible things with both audio and video uh, in terms of how he tries to create his art. Uh, he's been doing a lot of stuff in museums and things of that nature, so we talk a lot about that. But one of the great projects that he did is something called Moon Disaster, where he reimagined if the uh, moon landing went uh, very wrong, and he created a video of that um, and uh, used some a lot of uh, technology like deepfakes technology, etc., to change the way that history happened and sort of did that as an art piece. And it's a fascinating story, uh, fascinating uh, to talk about why he did it and how, how he did it. Uh, so really cool to have him on. I really want to thank uh, my good friend Ryan for suggesting him to be on, uh, suggesting that he be on the podcast. Uh, and it was awesome, awesome to have him on. So thank you so much. Really cool, uh, really cool to have him. Okay, um, we have a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, in terms of our product line, I think I mentioned this before, but you should definitely go check it out. We have uh, Phoenix 5 Update 2 is out. Uh, and of course, V-Ray 6 for Houdini Update 1 is out. Uh, and our big one, obviously, is Vantage 2, which is uh, something that I'm very excited about and has been a big, big, big conversation piece over at SIGGRAPH, and it is a really huge. And if you don't know what Vantage 2 is, it is our real-time array tracer. Uh, and in fact, I did an entire episode about it uh, with Simeon just a couple of episodes back. So go check that out if you're more interested in that. Uh, in terms of events, you can just find out all these events if you go to chaos.com slash events. I will be at uh, the a Rainbow Conference in London, which is August 29th through the 31st. And uh, in fact, I will give a talk at that, uh, at that conference. And that talk is going to be on August 31st itself. Uh, so I would love to see you guys there if you're going to be at the Rainbow Conference uh, in London. Uh, okay, uh, and now in terms of the podcast, if you guys are interested to find out more about that, of course, you can just go to our podcast page where you can see all of the different episodes we've had. That is at chaos.com slash CG Garage. Uh, and of course, you can always follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast. If you'd like to watch these podcasts, always suggested that you do that, uh, you can always see us on youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Um, uh, but if you'd like to make suggestions, in fact, we're getting some really great suggestions. Please don't forget to email us labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 439 with Halsey Brigand. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays. In high dynamic range, we know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. You seem to like technology, Halsey. <laughs> well, you know, I do. I do. I appreciate it, and I like it, and I also am, am, you know, scared by certain parts of it and encouraged by other parts of it, and sometimes the same thing that I'm, you know, both scared and encouraged by. But, yeah, I do, um, you know, my, my creative work does tend to, you know, lean on technology, I suppose, Somehow there's just an interest that I have in that and thinking about, you know, discovering new tools 
is can be very inspiring and it can be you know you can think about new creative directions to go in based on the existence of a tool or if a tool doesn't exist then you know the existence of tools to make new tools which is yep. um you know becoming more and more democratized which is pretty cool still you know you still need to have skills many of which i don't have but you know it's uh, sure it's still uh, more accessible than you know 20 years ago right yeah for sure for sure so what 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 i mean you you obviously you know you've done an incredible amount of work as a as a uh, transmedia artist is what they used to call people <laughs> like you back in the day who knows who knows what right but what you, you have an art you have an art background or an art interest where, where did that all start well, it really started from music, to be honest. Um, I have always, from my you know early days, young days of of, of being a person, I have uh, have played various instruments and really sort of enjoyed um, uh, creating music, listening to music, all that. So when I was a kid, I took various you know lessons and you know uh, piano and then trumpet and then drums and drums are the thing that really sort of stuck, much to the chagrin of my parents. But right. um, those sort of stuck with me um through college and whatnot so i was really sort of came at the my sort of early creative work so to speak that makes it sound fancier than it is but my creative endeavors uh you know uh the the things that got me excited were all sort of you know audio um and music specifically you know rock and roll things like that you know i had bands in uh in college and um and, and whatnot and uh and yeah so i started out um really sort of you know, somewhat traditional, you know, music creation. And, um, as that, as I got out of college and, and, and started to, um, you know, I took various hiatuses in different directions, different types of creativity. I was a furniture maker for a little while, which was, you know, totally different, but also fun, you know, using the hands. Carpentry. <laughs> yeah. Well, more like, you know, fine furniture, like making, you know, tables and, uh, you know, beds and, 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 you know, chairs and things like that, that, um, that was, you know, not as, you know, sitting in front of a computer all the time. So I enjoyed sure. that. And I still do some of that. But, um, but yeah, the music sort of stuck with me. And, and, um, and then it sort of gradually evolved for various reasons that I can, you know, go into or some of which I probably can't even put a finger on. It evolved more towards sound art and more sort of audio objects that exist over time rather than having specific start and end and, and less sort of performance based and more kind of, you know, installation based. And, and that evolution sort of happened over, over quite some time. And I still do a lot of, a lot of that work and that involves various degrees of technology. And how do yeah, you get into doing, that? I mean, how do you, how do you basically say, I want to install something in your place <laughs> or how does that happen? Yeah. Like, yeah, usually it's, you know, usually it's more the other way around, you know, will you install something in my place? Well, um, which, which takes a while to get to the point where, where museums and whatnot are interested in that. Um, the good thing about what I do is it is, it is, uh, you know, non-destructive in a physical sense. So sure. there's not a huge amount of, I mean, that, that's a challenge in other places, in other sort of an awareness sense, but um, from an installation sense, it's, you know, the installation is, you know, on a computer. And it's funny, some of the early places, you know, 15 years ago, when I started doing this, museums would, would, would often say, well, where is the, where's the computer that's running this? And I'd be like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's in my house, my studio connected to the internet. They're like, you've got to bring it here. It's, it has to be on site because we're a museum that, 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 that sort of, you know, our, our thing is physical objects. So we need to have the computer 
the thing that is the, the only physical manifestation of this project needs to be on site. You know, it wasn't like they anybody could see it. It was just they had this sort of comfort in the physicality of the device. But of what, course, were, what was what was going on in the museum? Was it obviously there's a lot of sound involved and music involved, but was it just an, an auditory experience that they were having? Yeah, it was like geolocated audio. A lot of my early work is geolocated audio. So placing bits of audio, musical compositions in a uh, in a physical landscape such that a participant, somebody interested in experiencing the piece would walk around a physical landscape, whether it's a sculpture park or some kind of, you know, a, a urban, um, you know, a leafy urban, you know, a park of some sort or or you know, anything, um, as they walk through there, the path that they go on determines what they hear based on um, this software that I developed called Roundware, which enables, you know, you to place, essentially place pieces of audio that are components of the final piece. And then you, as you're walking through this piece, are kind of assembling them. You're not doing anything to assemble them other than walking, but the, the act of walking and changing your location tells the system how you are moving through a space and it creates in a sort of audio soundtrack to go along with you as you as you go. So you have headphones I, on or are there speakers in different locations? No, there's head, so it's headphones and it would be an app-based thing so that the phone knows. I mean, I started this before before GPS was in your pocket and that was a real pain to do. So but how did you geolocate at that time? <laughs> Sorry, I'm asking you all these questions. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, well, the initial ones were geolocated, what I call, what I cleverly called manual geolocation. Uh -huh. So you would... There would be a series of more discrete series of, of locations mm -hmm. within a, an area, and you would have to like press a button on the screen of your little Nokia, you know, first generation like stylus based computer and say, "Oh, I'm near this tree now," and then it would kind of it would sort of uh, you know go according to that. So it was much less fine grained and whatnot, but it still did have a you know I could compose something around that restriction. Interesting. You know, um, and uh, and that was you know okay, but once once it was fine grained and and GPS enabled, it became much more um, well. It just again a tool enabled uh, different explorations from an artistic sense. And you've done many of these installations. I was looking. I mean, you've got you're very prolific. So you've done <laughs> many of these types well, of installations. Well, I, I'm either prolific or old, right? One <laughs> or the other. Either I've been around for a really long time. Um, you know, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And yes, yes, I've done them. In lots of places, the, the software, this Roundware software, the software that I mentioned before, is sort of a platform that um, a lot of other folks have used as well. I've open sourced it so people can, um, you know, check it out, either use it as it is or grab bits and pieces. You know, the whole open source thing is very um, important to me. And um, and that creates a community of sorts of people who like to, you know, do walking art or, you know, anything like that, which is really exciting but yeah lots of you know pieces that have been a lot of art pieces but then you know got to make a living too and that doesn't always pay the bills so um there have been museums sort of some of the more progressive museums that realize that traditional audio tours are kind of not the thing that people are too interested in anymore this kind of you know broadcast model of some important curator telling you what you're supposed to think about the art as you wander through. So right. a lot of uh, museums have thought it's nicer to be able to sculpt your own a little bit as you walk. And one of the key components around where is the ability to record as well. So there's not only listening as you walk through, but then if you want to make your own recording of 
what you think about a particular artwork or you know something like that you can pull out the phone make that recording upload that and then it becomes part of the landscape part of the audioscape for future people to listen to so it's this dynamic situation that so we could on. do a podcast while we're re walking in the park and that would be people could re-experience that podcast geographically yes yes we could and it would be pretty cool um <laughs> you know i tend to I tend to like, you know, the best way to perhaps do something like that would be if you and I were together and we were actually walking together initially making recordings yes. and, um, and then we could kind of replace them where they were because then it, then it would be that connection between us and what we were talking about and how that might have been affected by what we were seeing and feeling from the physical landscape at that point, which, which you know, I think is, is pretty exciting to sort of capture those moments and then other people might have different feelings about uh, they will certainly have different feelings and experiences and depends on the weather and other stuff like that that um that can be captured and sort of um you know maintained in a, in a certain in a certain spot yeah that's amazing that's really cool well, <laughs> so how long yeah, were you doing how long were you doing some of those projects <laughs> and when what Sorry? year are we talking about when did it all start this started probably about 15 years ago now, okay. 2008 maybe or something. Right. Like I literally started doing this, and while I was doing it, the iPhone 3GS. Yeah, the iPhone, the, the first iPhone came out in 2007. So, yeah, so it was the, okay, the next so one. The 3GS might have been eight or nine, yep. something like that. Yep. And, um, and that really, again, the first projects I did were not with smartphones, they were with these sort of early tablet things. They were kind of you know, we've all perhaps, well, perhaps the Palm Pilot might be one of the more, uh, you know, yep. heard of ones, but some of these, the Nokia ones were a little more open in terms of the ability to program them and, mm -hmm. and get them to do things that you wanted. Um, and uh, yeah, but then of course the sound card, you can imagine the sound card in Nokia, right? you know, N800 is, uh, it was like 8-bit, you know, it was like crunchy, scratchy. Yeah, it is what it is, yeah. <laughs> you know, so... So yeah, that started back then, and Roundware has, you know, is still sort of being developed. I wouldn't call it a fast pace, okay, just because it's a labor of love, and there's not, you know, the money is always a, a part of the equation. And um, but you know, new projects come up, and I'm syncing audio now, which is really cool. So I have six different tracks, and they're kind of like as if they're in a DAW. They can be synced, so you can actually create a piece of music that is, you know, very, very highly synced, like, you know, drums and bass lines and all this kind of stuff. And as you wander through different parts, you know, verse one is, is in this physical location, which is just a different way of thinking about a piece of music instead of verse one is, is certain time. Seconds. Yes, exactly. Right. It's at a certain, a certain location. And that makes you think about the composition process, or at least makes me think about the composition process very differently because right. you don't, there's certain, Again, you're giving up certain aspects of control over the um, over what somebody actually hears. Sure, but perhaps you're gaining something in the flexibility and the um, the customizability um, on the other end. So that's pretty pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Now you mentioned it's like obviously this doesn't pay the bills. So what was paying the bills at the time? What was helping you pay the bills? Well, you know, um, some things that were related to this. Um, in that uh, when museums or cultural institutions wanted to deploy roundware to create this sort of new type of experience for their audiences, although they could take the code for free and do it on their own, it was 
easier and probably cheaper mm -hmm. to just hire me to do that. So I, I would, um, you know, deploy and customize Ramware for um, different organizations and mm -hmm. that, you know, that helps pay the bills. There are other, you know, technology uh, bits that, um, skills that I can be hired, you know, to, to do. Um, I haven't had a real job in quite some time, so to speak, real, quote unquote. There's um, no such thing as a real job. <laughs> there's... Um, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Good. Yes. Uh, I, per, you know, uh, I like the independent part of it. Of sure. course, there are big challenges to that too. Um, more recently with the AI work I've been doing, there's, you know, there's just the frenzy about that makes, um, you know, it gives me opportunities to, uh, you know, consult in that sense on various projects, whether it's, you know, other audio things or whether it's synthetic media in film and things like that, that, um, that help, uh, sort of pay the bills. And then, you know, the other, the other part is just don't live extravagantly. Right. <laughs> it's, right. Live with I, I, the kids, they, they cost money, but you know, it's like, you just don't need to be right. wild and crazy. Okay. Time, so. Well, I do want to get into the AI stuff, but obviously there's a lot of steps between what we talked about and how you got into some of the AI work. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other projects you were developing along those time around that time. Sure. Let me try to think of what's maybe a, a another. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of. I mean, the audio does does do. There was a, a while where I was doing, you know, the audio stuff that I've I've described. This sort of you know combination of building the technology to enable this these projects and then doing these sorts of projects and and doing them in different different parts of the world and different under different circumstances. Um, you know, I did one in in New Zealand in the city of Christchurch, which was really interesting because that city was devastatingly uh, destroyed by an earthquake. Um, I forget what the year was, but a couple of years before doing this project. And then they were in the process of sort of rebuilding. So mm -hmm. it was really interesting to allow people to wander the city and sort of, you know, to the extent that they could, a bunch of it was shut down because it was so, uh, you know, things were about to fall over even more. Right. But have people think about, you know, the past and the future all at once, sort of, this is where I used to go to see my favorite bands in this building that is now destroyed, but I no longer can, but I have these fond memories of it. But also, well, it's a clean slate to some sense, in some sense, and that's this incredible opportunity for a, a city to sort of, I mean, organic growth is wonderful, but sometimes there's, it's nice to be able to plan things out in a way. Of course, getting consensus on the plan is very challenging, but, you know, this project was sort of part of people kind of musing about what was um, what was possible for the future and what was interesting and um, and uh, important and nostalgic to them from the past. And, you know, I think audio can help do that time travel in some ways. So right. that's another example of that kind of project. And then maybe about four or five years ago, I started um, getting more and more into, um, you know, AI stuff, which again, that's a, <laughs> that's a broad topic. It's so. a broad topic. So let's talk about, because it's interesting. Um, obviously right now there's a lot of uh, stuff going on in AI because of the explosion that's happened in, you know, probably less than a year. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. It's like six months in some way. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, but and and it's very controversial in the people. art community as well. So I would like to know, like you said, you've been looking at this from several years ago. So what were you looking at several years ago? What What were some of the things that intrigued you? Sure. Yeah. The, the, my first forays into um, sort of what I would. Act, I mean, I still have an issue with the term AI. You know, the intelligence part of it is is 
you know, not really there, but nonetheless, that's what we we've come it, to accept that as a term. I agree with we, you. Though. <laughs> yes, yes. The other term we've come to accept for better or for worse is deep fake. Right. Um, which that's a very know, specific I, kind of thing though. Exactly. That's a very specific kind of thing. It's, I, I prefer to use the slightly larger bracket of synthetic media. Um, but again, that's confusing. Um, deep fake just has obviously a lot of sort of negative connotations. I think that go along with that. Did you, uh, is that how you connected with Ryan because of the work that he was doing for his, uh, the Chimera stuff? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I connected with Ryan because, um, he, because of his work on Welcome to Chechnya, you know, yeah. I had already done this piece called In Event of Moon Disaster, which uh, premiered in 2019, which was a use of synthetic media, um, I think, similar to Ryan's work, trying to be very sensitive to and sort of have a pro-social use of, of the technology, um, of course, in Ryan's sense. Uh, you know, obscuring the identities of people who um, would otherwise be uh, in big trouble um, sure. getting their story out. Uh, and in my case, trying to use this technology that can, you know, that is essentially a disinformation machine um, and a machine of, you know, false, you know, falsely uh, representing people and try to use that to, um, to create awareness about how this kind of technology is coming and it's going to be a challenge for us, much like how Photoshop was a challenge at one point. Right. It is no longer really a challenge, but you know, this is probably a bigger challenge. And how do we how do we get out ahead of it a little bit and try to um, create awareness and in the case of the Moon Disaster Project, that was essentially a deep fake, for lack of a better term, of President Nixon um, delivering a speech that was written for him uh, were the Apollo 11 mission to have failed um, and ended in tragedy with the astronauts um, not making it back. And that was a real possibility. So a speech was written while they were like hurtling towards the moon. Uh, but Sapphire, it was never read. It was never read. It, it was, was just written. Right. It was written and it was never read and it was preserved in the National Archives. That's something that's supposed to happen if you if you yes <laughs> if if you write something yeah. you're supposed to go to national and not supposed to be in a chest in your bathroom. <laughs> that's what I've heard. I've learned that lately. But in any case, that is uh, that. It, it, but it was this gorgeous, elegiac, like amazing speech that um, you know I wasn't alive during Nixon's time, but I did watch a lot of his speeches sure. during this project. And and yes, a lot of them were not were were not of that sort. But nonetheless, he. It was this beautiful, beautiful speech. So we decided that we could take this real thing, this real speech that never happened, and use this, um, you know, technology to create things that never happened. Uh, synthetic media, deepfake technology. Put those together, and um, you know, give voice to this beautiful speech, um, sort of in a in a sort of alternative history context where we, our film is like an eight minute film. Only the last two minutes are the deepfake, but the whole part before is archival footage of. Walter Cronkite saying, you know, here we are, we're counting down to the blast off. You know, you see the astronauts getting onto the, 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 the you know, onto the rocket and blast off and hurtling through space, getting to the moon. And then, uh-oh, beep, 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 some computer malfunction, something's happening, you know, go to black. Then we, you know, scramble, get back to uh, Earth in the White House. People are setting up chairs, trying to, you know, hardly prepare for Nixon to develop, to, to deliver something. He comes in and then delivers this speech. So the idea is to sort of create an entire fake message with basically all real material. And then critically 
wrap the whole thing in this educational awareness, um, you know, wrapper that allows us to, you know, hopefully not purvey more moon's conspiracy theories, but rather try to um, sort of show how this stuff can happen. And, and it, you know, if we can get you to believe for a second that the moon landing didn't happen the way it is imprinted into your brain, then, you know, think about all those messages, all those videos, all that material coming through your social media feed that may also be similarly, um, you know, manipulated or augmented in some way to try to get you to believe something different, to behave in a different yeah. way, to, um, you know, something like that. So that was the, that was the hope. You know, it's a fine line between, you know, using technology to create fake things and uh, and and using it to sort of uncover those things. But. We, we, we tried. I think that's a really interesting thing because, I mean, obviously, there's this is something I've got a lot of interest in. A lot of my listeners know I have a huge interest in digital humans and also mm. some of the things that are happening uh, in terms of technology with AI and, and deepfakes. And it was interesting during that time, 2019 and early 2020, just before the pandemic, uh, uh, I was asked to go on a lot of panels because people are like, it's all going to be fake. They're going to screw up the election and this whole thing is going to be a big problem. And I thought, you know, things like what you showed are important because they show like, I am telling you this is fake <laughs> and you should see how good it looks, even though it's fake. Right. And I think right. like Jordan Peele tried to do the same thing when he made the Obama yeah. video. Right. And he was like, I, I am telling you that, you know, this isn't real, but I want you to know how possible it is. Right. Uh, and I think those are really important messages and that's basically the best way for us to do. So don't just automatically assume that what you just saw is correct. Right. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And, and, and I think that, you know, there's lots of really important sort of prongs of this, of this initiative that needs to happen to sort of try to inoculate society. And, you know, the one, you know, my skills are more in this aesthetic artistic uh, area arena and, you know, coming at people that way, uh, you know, can be really impactful. Um, also, you know, of course, doing things like digital watermarking and, you know, other technical things to uh, try to, um, you know, suss out uh, what's fake and what isn't is incredibly important too, because, you know, there's, you know, most of these fakes are indistinguishable. I mean, if you have enough time, you can make an indistinguishable, you know, piece. Of it content. doesn't even uh, need to be that good. I'll tell you exactly why, because I just saw yeah. recently there was, uh, do you remember the, the, the bad lip lips uh, reading yeah. videos? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. They're hilarious, okay. right? So they did a whole bunch with Ron DeSantis as a joke, right? Oh. And then there was a little yeah. clip of him being excited about a hot dog, and it was like just him goof. And that's clearly the bat. It went on social media, and everyone thought it was real. It's like it is yeah. not clearly not even close to being good. <laughs> they but don't, I guess if you want to believe that Ron DeSantis is is an idiot, if that made him look like an idiot, I, I don't know. Yeah, but and that's that's what that, they wanted, right? And it was like that is not. You, there's no, there's got to be some objection. And by the way, I'm all for parody. I'm all for interesting things. You know, all that's that's all good. You know, uh, deep fake Tom Cruise is hilarious to me. <laughs> you know, it's great, totally great. Yeah. They did a wonderful job. I mean, Metaphysic and, and Chris Ume. I mean, those guys are. I do. I've met those guys. Yeah, amazing. They, I mean, their technology is wonderful, and they're doing some amazing stuff. Yeah, you know, it's it's really uh, you know so many you know lots of small and big companies are getting into this and. You know, there's a lot of concern about the ethics and a lot of convenings and and groups that are are consortiums that are being created. And it's a really exciting time in that regard. And, you know, at the same time, when you're trying to create something in the midst of, you know, the technology moving so quickly, 
and the norms not being established, it's exciting because you can maybe help establish some of these norms, but it's also a bit nerve wracking and it's really hard to know always what the right thing to do is. And, um, you know, it, you know, we just, we got to keep on persisting and, and try and, and then, you know, correct course as we go, um, depending on, you know, the outcomes. Now, I, I know, I know, obviously, you know, based on what you explained, I know the motivation of what you want to try to say in a message from that video, which I think was good. But what was the, what was the thing that said, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to do that. Like, did you find the, the speech? Did you know about this speech? And say, like, oh, this is how I'm going to create this, like an alternative of this? Yeah, it did come from that. And I should be clear, I'm not the only one who did this project. My co-director, Francesca Panetta, was, um, you know, we were in it from the start together. Sure, and sure. We had lots of other folks who, who, who participated. Um, but the initial idea sort of came from, um, you know, actually, I, I'm from Boston and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fellow at MIT in the Open Documentary Lab there. And the only reason to mention that is because um, Fran, my co-director, was a fellow at the Neiman Fellow at the time, which is a journalism fellowship at, at Harvard. And there were sort of you know, there's lots of uh, sort of mixing and uh, mixing between these different fellowship programs sure. and, this, and the academic. I'm not really a part of the academic world, but I bump up against it in this in this way. And um, it's wonderful for me as an independent person to meet new people and whatnot. In any case, there's a night journalism fellowship as well. And we I Fran and I met and had a, a bunch of actually audio similarities that we did. So we were we became good friends. And then we would we would meet every Friday with uh, a couple of other journalists and who were interested in technology and sort of where things were going. And we, you know, we started talking about the, it was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So we started talking about the moon and then somebody brought up this speech and we were like, Oh yeah, I've seen some stuff. That was a pod, a great, the, the truth podcast was done with this speech a long time ago, which was wonderful. Jonathan Mitchell. And, and then we were talking about deep fakes, which is, you know, we talked about that a lot. And then it was like this moment where we were all sort of like, wow, we have something that's amazing and beautiful and never happened. And then we have this thing that creates things that never happened. Right. And we have this opportunity to sort of do this in a context of, of um, you know, this seminal historic event in humanity, which, you know, AI also might be one of. Right. And it just sort of, you know, came together um, in this sort of wonderful collective way. And, um, and then we, you know, we pursued it from there needing to get funding and all of that, but it sort of came from this, you know, just sitting around talking about stuff with a group of people who you like and enjoy and, and who are smart and interesting and have good ideas. And, you know, the ideas are definitely not, uh, you know, the majority of them are, have nothing to do with me, but you know, I kind of there and we all kind of contribute yeah, and, yeah. um, uh, and, uh, you know, comes together. So. Well, I, I think that's, that's amazing. Uh, and, uh, I like to know a little bit, I mean, obviously since there's some tech, geeks that listen to this what were some of the techniques i mean you, you you obviously had a bunch of archival footage right and you had a written speech so how did you first of all how did you convert that written speech to sound exactly like nixon what technology do you use to do that right uh yeah i can go through that for sure um and uh, i will i will i will caveat it with being that this was four years ago and that's you know that's like a thousand years a thousand years AI, you know, yes like but nonetheless so it's still very different yeah it's very different now, and I can tell. I can talk about it now. Yeah, too, sure, as well. sure, sure, sure. Back then, back then when it was really hard to do, um, we were working with a company called Respeecher, um, an amazing startup out of uh, Kiev. Uh, they're Ukrainian. They've been keeping it going throughout all the insanity of the past um, two years, mm. two years now, a year and a half at least. And they're they're amazing, and they were one of the uh, only companies at the time that was um, developing what's called speech to speech voice synthesis or voice cloning and 
speech to speech is as opposed to text to speech. And what that means is that instead of um, taking text written on a computer and feeding that into a model and having the model produce an audio voice that speaks those words, mm -hmm. instead of doing that, it takes in an audio file, a WAV file, an MP3 of somebody speaking and then converts that. It doesn't even know what it's actually saying. It just converts the sounds of that performance into um, a different person. So it's basically a way to um, be able to capture a performance of somebody delivering something and just make it sound like it is a different person doing the speaking. And for us, for Fran and I, it was absolutely critical not to sound robotic. You know, we didn't want this to sound like, or at least to try not you know, to try as much as possible right. not to sound robotic. Right? Um, so we, you know, we were able to use this speech to speech technology, which, um, which uh, basically enabled us to get an actor. We hired an actor, Louis D. Wheeler, who was wonderful, who would, you know, we can say deliver the speech and, uh, you know, do it slowly, do it presidentially, you know, mm -hmm. pause here a little more, all these sorts of things and direct um, him as we would direct anybody. But then that audio would be converted into President Nixon's voice rather than a just we experimented with Texas speech. And trust me, back then, especially it was just it didn't sound anything like an actual person delivering delivering um, a speech. So. Okay. So long story short, but, we but the system had to be trained on Nixon's voice. And obviously exactly. there's plenty of speeches that he has made. Right. And not just Nixon's voice. It also at that time, and this is one of the big ways things have changed recently. Um, it also had to be trained on the actor's voice. So we actually built an AI model. We mm -hmm. re-speecher mm -hmm. built an AI model that had one specific purpose. And that very specific purpose was to be able to convert Lewis D. Wheeler's voice into Richard Nixon's voice. Right. And that was it. It wouldn't do anything yeah. else. It was trained just to do that. And the way to train a model to do that is to- So it was more like Lewis to Richard, not speech to speech. <laughs> exactly, yeah. In that sense, it was, right. Yeah. So if I if I gave my voice, you know, and we put that into it, it would just be a total mess. Um, Interesting. But um, the way to train the model to do that was to give it tons of what they call parallel data, which are basically pairs of data that are audio clips of Nixon saying something, you know, a five second audio clip of and Nixon saying something. And then Lewis would have to say the same thing in his own voice, right? Exactly. Exactly. Not impersonating Nixon, but saying it with the same speed, the same cadence, the right. same sort of, uh, the same representation there. And then the, the model would say, oh, I've got a thousand of these things. Now I can say- How long did it take Lewis to train? Said. Oh God, poor Lewis. He was amazing. Really? Um, we, we, were, we were in the studio for like, two days of just saying, you know, of just, you know, Vietnam speech. It was like all Vietnam speeches too, which was, <laughs> you know, just got really old listening to sort of belligerent, you know, statements about what's happening over there. And again, this wasn't in my lifetime, so I wasn't, it, it didn't hit home in that sense, right. but it was just, there was a lot of material um, that, you know, it's all public domain and whatnot. So, but yeah, you know, there was a system that Respeacher had that thankfully made this a little bit easier where you could, you know, do do multiple takes and and you know easily and then just upload through the web kind of like what we're doing right now right. and um it worked but yeah that and then that material had to be you know ingested by their model and you know gpus crunching for yep. you know days and then out comes a model that can take any input and then we had lewis deliver the speech as i said before and then you know many times and we would take those outputs and and then we kind of had to, there was a bunch of post-production too um sure. of kind of 
Frankensteining different, uh, you know, different, um, different versions of what the AI spit out. Mm -hmm. um, some were better than others, and we would kind of build the most realistic um, audio uh, clip of, um, of, you know, of the speech that we could. Um, and then and how, did, how did you <laughs> sync that with the video? Like, how did you get the video yeah. and audio to work? The video, the video was a different company we work with called Canny AI. They, um, they're actually no longer around, but um, they, what they do is what they called it was video dialogue replacement. People call it all sorts of different. Relip syncing, basically, yeah. Neural lip syncing. Yes, it's it's basically taking a video um, of somebody. Um, saying one thing and then uh, converting that into saying something else by the input of a different video. So we had a video of our actor delivering the speech. We created, made sure that video corresponded with the audio we had created. Mm -hmm. And then we gave them that video and they basically, you know, the AI model would be able to take the specific motions of Lewis's mouth and transfer those over to um, President Nixon's mouth mm -hmm. um, in in a clip that we selected to have that done. That is the target video, and we, you know, listened and looked at all these Vietnam speeches and all these other speeches, and it turned out that the best speech, based on you know, because nothing else was changing, just the lips. So we had to have the right demeanor, the right kind of setup, and it turned out that his resignation speech. <laughs> in some maybe not surprising way was the best one because it was a bit song it was you know it was somber, somber. it was more serious wow. and we wanted we didn't want the belligerence of a vietnam speech to be you know the, the the table pounding we wanted it to be more um you know of a somber feel so yeah the resignation speech so we took a two-minute clip of that we tried to line it up with you know with his hand gestures his looking around that all stayed so we had to line those things up as best as possible with the content of our speech and then just you know, and then have Kenny, Kenny did the hard work, you know, um, of, of doing that model, sort of the, the lip manipulation. And, um, and yeah, there wasn't training on that side. That was a, a, a they, Kenny had done all the training to sort of have their model understand how the voice, how the lips move and transferring that from one video to another. It, it, they, they did all the hard work there and we just had to provide sort of inputs. Wow. Wow, wow. Well, now obviously this uh, is interesting because there, there is the new. There, Sorry, I couldn't hear you. I didn't get that. Could you try again? It's telling it. Uh, it's giving me. It's like your Siri is yeah, talking. Yeah, I know. My Siri is. She butts in all the time. She thinks I'm talking to her, and I'm <laughs> definitely not. Sorry about that. That we can, you know. That's okay. That. So I think she started talking, and that's why I couldn't hear you for just a second. But uh, hopefully, she will. She likes to be a part of my conversations. You know, I. I, I she likes to be part of it. Yes. The AI is always going to be. Yes, right. Uh, there, there, there is actually, it's interesting. I talked to uh, a friend of mine, Mike Seymour, who oh, yeah. uh, uh, has doing been, he's been doing that for, for uh, uh, translations yeah. and, and dubbing stuff, which is pretty he cool. He does amazing work. And he uh, works with Hal Lee, of course, and how I've been working with Hal mm -hmm. also. Hal is amazing. And they, yeah, they do a lot of, uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's the, it's, it's so good. You know, if they, if, if, if you have enough time to make sure things, you know, can align in a way that makes sense, um, it's, it can be just indistinguishable. Um, and yeah, yeah. I admire all the work those guys are doing. It's great. And 
Yeah. So, so you mentioned, obviously, you know, that was four years ago and ages and ages ago. How, how has that technology changed? And is that something you're, you're continuing to look at and continue to explore that idea? Right yeah, now? definitely. I'm working on a new project right now that um, sort of requires almost real, not actually real time, but, you know, two or three minutes kind of, you know, quasi real time uh, creation of, um, you know, deep fakes using a, a voice and visuals. Um, and, you know, it's really close to being quite possible to do that, especially on the voice side. The voice side now, um, you can you can take 30 seconds of somebody's audio if it's you know, relatively clean and, um, you know, upload it to one of these services. I'm, I'm working with a company called Resemble AI mainly who does great work um, and is very, uh, very ethically minded as well, which is a key requirement for me to work with um, anyone and they enable you to if you have proper consent and transparency and everything they enable you to uh, upload a um, voice clip of you know 30 seconds and then within you know three minutes they create a model that will then um, you know allow you to uh, create a synthetic version of that person's voice saying anything you want is it quite is it you know is the quick version as good as the more bespoke sort of, you know, uh, longer uh, version that has post-production and all that. No, but it's, it's really good. <laughs> you know, it's really good. And um, especially in this day and age when we're used to these conversations where there are little glitches and there's weird things and it's all going through the internet and there's compression algorithms that are doing stuff. And, you know, we don't expect perfection in, in these kinds of contexts. Uh, and, um, you know, you can get really close to um, sounding like people. So that can happen, you know, very, very quickly. So, uh, you know, instead of weeks and months of, of you know, actors and training models and all this kind of stuff, you can have it um, go much quicker. I know the respeacher process right now, they do a lot of like very high-end Hollywood stuff, um, amazing stuff. And again, that more bespoke work takes a little longer, of course, but it's sure. um, but then then it's just totally pristine, high, highest quality you can get and and really, really great um, uh, work. But if you want to just like you were saying before, it's like you don't have to be perfect to, to get the point across in a lot of cases and, you know, for better yeah. or for worse. And um, and now the voices can be done very quickly. You know, there are text to speech models that go even quicker than that, you know, because you don't need the, the speech input. You just type something in and it's, um, you know, the ability of some newer text to speech models to not sound robotic is is incredible. You know, it's not it's it's definitely not perfect. And it definitely does still to my ear and probably yours as well sound somewhat robotic, but it is just so much better than it used to be. You know, if we think about the the prototypical sort of Stephen Hawking, you know, voice, uh, you know, it, that became, you know, his thing. So we, we kind of identified it with him, but, but it sounded, it didn't sound like a person so much as it sounded like, um, I don't know. I mean, robot is an easy word to use, but uh, that was amazing technology for the time. But now the sort of nuance of the speech can be, uh, you know, inferred by these models, even if they don't get that performative input. And that, mm. that's crazy. <laughs> and I don't know how they do it. I don't yeah. know how they do it, but um, they sometimes might not know how they do it either. You know, these AI black boxes are um, impenetrable in some ways. Well, what is what? So, what is your your goal here? Is your goal continuing to like explore the possibilities of what this is, just to bring awareness to this as a, as in, through art, or what is what are you trying to accomplish through these 
Um, yeah, but, you know, more or less that, you know, obviously other goals are me wanting to, uh, you know, satiate my creative desires and, uh, and, and build stuff that is interesting to people. Um, I also have, you know, I need to, I like satiating my, um, interest in learning about these new technologies, um, and, and trying to sort of, you know, stay on the, the cutting edge of what this stuff is, what, what's happening. But I do have a really, really deep concern about where some of these technologies are going and what could be done and what is being done with them in in many situations that is you know antisocial uh you know so my work i really try to have this pro-social um you know uh bent on things and you know the large language models you know the chat gpts of the world are i'm, I'm getting into those in a big way um just sort of learning about how they work and I have a new project that sort of deals with the law and ChatGPT and large language models and sort of how this is going to affect society. I mean, it does really feel like right now is one of these moments where some some big wave is coming and the extent to which the the the, the percentage of which that wave is pro-social versus versus the opposite, call it antisocial, call it something else, is still up for grabs in a big way. And it's really important that we do everything we can to um, you know, steer it towards the pro-social. You know, I'm just one individual artist, and you know, God knows what effect I can actually have, but I want to try. And um, it's lucky for me that the trying enables me to you know satisfy some of these other curiosities that I have. And you know, it's it's when you're working with technologies that are sort of hip or you know zeitgeisty which they are right now at least not when we did moon disaster four years ago not so much but now they are that, that obviously right. helps you know get recognition as well which um you know recognition for me is not as much the point as recognition of um you know some of the the purposes of of you know the awareness campaigns and whatnot that we're trying to get out so you know that's that's what i hope to do and um juries will always be out on that as to whether I'm well I'm curious I'm curious about the feedback because you know speaking of short attention span current state of social yeah. media and not necessarily seeing uh, people don't seem to be very good at nuance anymore oh. uh and so yes. I think that uh, you know just the fact that you are do you are using this technology to be aware of things. Are people missing the point and just upset at the fact that you're using this technology and don't realize that you're doing it for awareness purposes rather than? Yes, I mean, <laughs> certain people definitely are. Do obviously, there's no right. way to know what percentage are and what percentage isn't. All I can say is that from the start of every project I do, I think about how to minimize that and every time right. you know the moon disaster project has been we have an installation version of this as well which is like there's the website moondisaster.org but then there's an installation which is you know shown at film festivals and museums and things like that galleries that is like a 1969 living room which is when apollo 11 happened and like an old vintage tv mm -hmm. with you know four by three crt you know bulbous screen and you walk in, the decor is from that time, you're sort of walking back in time into this um, into this place and you sit down and then you watch as if you're having a, you know, Super Bowl party, but it's for the moon landing, which was something that happened, you know, in in, in yep. that time period. And, uh, and then, oh my God, it doesn't happen the way you thought it was going to happen and whatnot. But the physicality of that affords us the opportunity to put lots of other information out there that's like, you know, 
this is a deep fake and whatnot that sort of sort of surround the um the uh the, the central message because we don't want to plaster across President Nixon's face, you know, fake. You know, we don't want to because that that takes you out of the whole that that I think ruins the impact. So of course. So we had we have, we've been very careful with that, and we've modified as we've gone. We've tried different you know different approaches. The first time we premiered this at the um, International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam in 2019, we got a lot of people saying all sorts of things that just weren't you know oh this was this was filmed and these artists found this archival film of Nixon doing this, um, and they've they just brought it out and sort of using it in that sense you know, no, or, or, oh, the artist wrote this and they just, they just, they, they made up Nixon saying it, but the artist wrote it. It isn't real. And there were all these sort of variations that we heard people saying, and we tried to disabuse them of all of those, of course, in the moment, but we're not there all the time. So we, we, we modified some of our messaging to try to be even more like, this is fake. If you go to our website, kind of the first thing you see is like, can you spot a deep fake? So we kind of, we, we, yep. before, we, we, we forward, you know, we, we try to put that up, up front while not, while not, sort of sacrificing some of the hoped emotional impact that the piece will have. And, and that's just an ongoing process. And, and every time there's a new project, there's new ways of, 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 you know, labeling, what's the best way to label something that is critical. When I work with like, you know, productions and I'm working with a documentary production right now that I can't talk about the details of, but you know, there's a, there's a synthetic media component to it. And it's like, how do you label that? in a way that the majority of your audience will understand what's going on, but also have it sort of be aesthetically pleasing and not disruptive. And I think, you know, going back to Ryan, I think Ryan um, and his whole team uh, with Welcome to Chechnya was was incredibly effective at, at, at sort of coming up with a subtle sort of in situ way of, of highlighting which faces were not the real face of the individual um, and then obviously, um, you know, they explained things sort of pre and post as well. But during during the uh, during the actual film, there was that sort of reminder for viewers that there was this there was something right. different about it without, again, plastering over it or blurring the face completely or whatever other more, right. you know, sort of less subtle. But they did. I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like they had to do something to illustrate this fact and do certain things things yeah. right so like for example he doesn't like to use the term deep fakes for what <laughs> what he did but he needs to find another way of saying that because deep fakes imply that you're fooling right. someone right or implies it and there's all this connotation of revenge oh, areas yeah. and you know so all this, right but he also put you know little outlines around like he didn't completely clean up right. the thing so you could see that this was a mask yeah, in a, a sense, digital, right? I mean, a what does he call it? A digital veil or something like that? I think there's different yeah. terminology or a halo of sorts. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, but yours is very, very good. I mean, like, I looked at it as like, I know this is not real. I figured it out. I, you know, I, I figured out what's going on, but it was like, it's really good, right? Like the lips are looking well. The video footage looks really good. Uh, and it's pretty uh, impressive uh, what you're doing. And obviously you've probably gotten even better these days. But uh, I'm also curious about, you know, there, there, there are actually huge teams of people now that are working in, you know, video forensics specifically to try to do this. Do you, have you thought about because of, you know, you're working with people who documentaries, et cetera, who uh, chief footage, do you work with those guys or you heard of companies that do that stuff? So um, when you say digital forensics, do you mean folks who are trying to suss out what is fake versus what is real or? Yeah, yes. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say work with as much as sort of interface with uh, at different 
at different, okay. you know, uh, whether the different gatherings of different sorts. Um, uh, I've certainly, you know, there was one individual who was um, uh, interviewed for a piece that Scientific American did about our moon disaster project that, that you know, was a guy who, you know, he's an academic and he's, his research is all based on, you know, sort of trying to use different techniques to, to um, you know, interrogate video clips and sort of see what is fake and what isn't. You know, our clip was very easy for his software to say, look, it's not, it's not real. And that made me very happy. I'm like right. super happy about that. Um, but, you know, the, it, it's, it's really an interesting, you know, where is the world going to go? Are we going to go to a place where everybody needs to prove that you're real? Or are we going to go to a place where all videos run through some kind of, you know, pretty good, detector and and then given some stamp at that point i mean are people going to assume everything's false before they assume it's true or the opposite or it's just this you know it's so i mean crazy. i think these days these days you you know this the lens i'm sorry the lens on this camera on on this thing is really small and somehow it takes pictures that are as good and sometimes better than it a, a piece of film that big, right? So a lot of processing takes place into these things to the point where whatever photograph you're getting out of this is not really the photograph that it took at all. Yeah, I know. Did you hear <laughs> right? about that uh, that moon photograph? The, I was going to bring up the Samsung oh, no. moon. Picture. Well, you could probably describe it better than me, but it's uh, that was crazy. That was. Yeah, someone actually literally took a picture of a white circle and a black square and then zoomed in from the other side of the room and it magically turned into the moon because it thought that's what he was trying to take a picture of. Right. So <laughs> the implication, of course, is just like you said, when you do take a picture of the moon, it isn't at all what you took the picture of. It is something that is, you know, some no. high resolution, you know, or... It's a bunch of dirt that is like, this looks like you're trying to take a picture of the moon. Here's a picture of the moon instead. <laughs> yeah, which if you think about that sort of applied broadly to, uh, you know existence you know society it's just right. like everything turns brown you know it's like no offense to brown but it's sort of like everything just there's no bright you know uh exciting like out of the realm of normal right. things that happen because that's the, the, the these unexpected moments are not you know they're inherently they're by definition not going to be part of uh, an ai's training data because they're so yeah, uh, yeah. By, by definition, they're going to give you the most expected result. <laughs> right. Which is why, you know, AI systems are, in some sense, totally regressive. And that right. is like, what's happening there? You know, what, how, is our, how, how is our society sort of, you know, this thing that's supposed to change all of society in some sense, you know, super regressive, <laughs> which... You know, well, isn't a promise that it's going to take care of the mundane for you so that you can focus sure. on the progressive? Yeah. Leave the progressive up to the human. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, I, you know, Hey, I'm a, a I'm a, I'm a fan of the positive potential. Uh, I, I, I totally am. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not a naysayer, but I, I, I think there's some sort of, you know, I mean, that's one of the concerns that, that's out there. It's interesting. Some of the recent research that, uh, you know, academics and others have done on, you know, what happens when you train an AI model, specifically an LLM at this point, I believe, on you know mm. data that isn't entirely organic, data that is partially organic and partially synthetic, what happens to the the efficacy of that model? How does it perform on baseline tests and whatnot? And at least initially, as I understand it, you know the performance of the model goes down very quickly when you start training it on stuff that isn't right. real. So, you know, the market for purely organic data sets, you know, from pre twenty twenty one is just going to be like you know a hot market, and because the internet is 
I mean, yeah. what percentage of the internet is synthetic right now? I don't know, but it's some of some of the systems have gotten worse at math than they were before. <laughs> yeah, thankfully not the systems that were designed to do math, but nonetheless. Yeah, yeah right. Very, exactly. It's, uh, it's a wild thing. Uh, so, so I do want to talk a little bit. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of the debate recently. There was a congressional hearing that happened. Uh, uh, someone I know, Carlo Ortiz, was up mm -hmm. there for for the congressional hearing, specifically surrounding the concept of copyright and artist copyright oh. and things of that nature. Yeah. What are uh, what are some of your feelings about that and how these systems are created? Uh, around that idea of copyright, and you know, what, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean that 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 brings in, I think, some of the the WGA and SAG after strike stuff as well, where there's there's mm -hmm. you know um, all sorts of totally legitimate concerns about how models are basically training themselves on copyrighted material and then spitting out material that is effectively well, that is not copyrighted by the same people for sure. And who it is copyrighted right. by is, is as far as I know, still sort of up in the air. Um, so yeah, I mean, as an artist, as a creator, as somebody who, you know, I guess it's possible something I've done is, is in some training set somewhere. It's, you know, my work isn't, I'm not a writer. So, you know, I, I probably, I'm not in an LLM most likely, but, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for, um, for that, you know, that that's a totally legitimate gripe and concern. And, you know, I do agree that there should be some compensation model for this, but I understand enough about the technology to be at a loss for exactly how one does that. It's very difficult. Mm. I mean, there are companies working on, you know, demystifying what's actually going on inside the AI when it gets to, uh, you know, the output that it, that it, that it gets, like, why did it come up with that? You know, Anthropic is, mm -hmm. is, is doing some great work on that. They're really focused on it. Um, you know, their constitutional AI system is, you know, and I forget what term there's some, some term that's used for, you know, being able to go back and look at what happened and sort of see what's happening, um, as to how it, how it's quote unquote reasoning. Um, and that could be applied perhaps to, you know, what influences there are that have led to the output. And then there could be some kind of fractional divvying up of, of joint copyright. I mean, who knows? But it's a really complicated but really important situation because, you know, if if the suits get their way with the WGA and put writers' rooms being predominantly AI, then, you know, they're poisoning their own well because the AIs just aren't going to be able to keep on doing, I mean, they, they, they don't do creative new things now, but it's going to get even worse if they don't have that, that, um, that sort of new human based organic input. So. I, I agree. I mean, I honestly, I'm jokingly says like a lot of movies today, today seem like they're already written by an AI. So it's not wow. so, <laughs> super surprising, yeah. but, but yeah. I actually also think that it, it's interesting that it's happening at this very moment, because I think there is a rebellion in the film industry be, before the strikes where people were not going to movies, seeing the same stuff over wow. and over again. They've looking for fresh they're looking for new ideas and I think it's hilarious that at this point it's like, oh no, we're just going to replace you with a bunch of AI. So it's like you're already losing because you're having unoriginal ideas, and now you want to take care of the only thing that's going to stop you or make you original. So. Yeah, I know, I know, I totally agree. At, at the same time, I will say that I do not like the solution. Isn't just 
don't allow AI to be a part of this stuff. Like, first of all, I don't think that's practical um, because it's just yes. going to become more and more, in, 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 you know, infiltrated into everything in our lives. But I also think that, you know, AI as a tool, as a, um, as a, a an idea generator, uh, you know, a sort of, you know, as an inspiration for things, um, you know, is, is, you know, can be quite useful. I mean, I've, I started out, you know, 20 years ago with, you know, building different sorts of randomizing, random number generators and sort of, you know, musical randomizers that create, you know, different arpeggios. And I just listen to it for five minutes until I, oh, that one, I like that one. And I'm and I just take that one and then use that in some, sure. in some way. And that, you know, I didn't write that arpeggio, but I created the system that, that, that asked for, you know, variations to be created within certain parameters. And then I, I selected the one I liked and then I use it. And that to me is there's nothing, you know, I've done all the creative work there essentially. Uh, and I think that, that right. chat GPT and, and whatever else can be, you know, used similarly, people get good at prompt engineering and putting stuff in and, and getting stuff out and then taking little ideas and then developing them from there. And that's a perfectly valid approach, the sort of cyborg approach, the human in the loop approach that, you know, I feel is much more likely to be feasible, but also could be quite positive, you know, it could be, it could be quite positive, but that emphatically, I will state again, you know, writers need to be the driving force in this particular, or the, the creators, whether it's writers or musicians or whomever, they need to be the driving force. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only way the output is going to really be, um, you know, continuing to sort of push creative boundaries and, um, and go in, 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 in interesting directions for, you know, for human consumers, you know, maybe there will be a breed of right. AI consumers in the future that will just love this sort of derivative stuff and it'll get excited about that. But that's not, you know, right now the consumers of this stuff are humans and our brains remain organic. Right. And, and I think there's something about having an organic, you know, driver in the creation of these things that, you know, we probably can't put our finger on exactly what it is, but there's something there that, um, that gives us that sense of satisfaction and, uh, and, and enjoyability and, and emotional, you know, reaction. Well, I think it's really interesting to, you know, sort of embrace where technology is, even if, even if you, you know, think of the, the, the challenges that it has or, oppose, or against it and not necessarily outright reject it. Uh, although there's a reasons for that. I mean, I remember talking to Phil Hale, who's a famous, famous artist, and he did not like anyone using Photoshop because he thought undo was cheating. <laughs> hey, that's an right? argument, you know, you can make them. And, and that's, I told, I get what he's saying. It makes sense. I mean, that's his process is layers and layers and layers and going, the mistakes that you make are part of the process that you go forward in yeah. terms of that. And that's his journey that he's going for. Uh, which I understand, but you know, I think it's also at the same time. I think it's really cool that you are looking at these tools and saying, "It's like I understand all the problems with AI, and I'm going full force using it, so I understand it even better." <laughs> yeah. yeah, and if we don't have, you know, I mean, I was a, you know, I was a sort of co-signer of a of a of a of a of a open letter to, you know, when the AI Digital Bill of Rights, the AI Bill of Rights, was being. Oh, like right. Yeah, period yeah. And like, you know, a group of artists and creative people got together and said, basically, you know, in simple form, you know, we want to be a part of this. We need to be us people like us, not necessarily specifically us, but people who are artists, who are creators, who are, you know, this sort of, of, of individual needs to be a part of this discussion, not just policymakers and technology developers and platform maintainers and lawyers and all of which are important constituents. Very important. But, you know, right. artists, creators need to be 
um, you know, in the conversation in order to keep this stuff going. And I think the only way to be in the conversation in a meaningful way is to dive in and try it. And, you know, I mean, I've tried so many AI tools and so many things that, 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 are, that are not useful to me and not interesting to me. And that's, that's fine. That's expected. It doesn't mean they're bad tools. It just means they're not the thing for me. But um, doing that experimentation and, you know, uh, going through that process and learning about what, what is there, what is available, and, you know, how these things might interact with each other and with me and with an audience, that's a thought process that will have some effect on my future work that I do want to put out there and do actually does actually end up being you know, something official instead of just a noodling around with stuff. And that's, you know, sure. part of the process. I mean, I find it interesting, like, like Adobe right now, obviously they're talking about Firefly yeah. and their own AI system and they keep referring to it as an ethically sourced AI model. Right. Which I think is kind of a funny, it's like, you know, organic salt, which is not yeah. organic, but, uh, <laughs> it's possible that marketing but team had something I, to do with that labeling. I, I I'm just, yeah, which is listen. It's fine at this fine, but I started to think about it. I was like, okay, well, let's 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 take that that term more yeah. seriously, or at least the concept of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, do you think that at some point there could be like nutrition labels on AI models? Like this is where this come from. These are the sources that you know, you know, natural, not not copyright materials, consent. Uh, we're compensating the uh, the people who've created this or whatever it is. Do you think that's going to be something that could be? Yeah, out there? I love that idea, and that's already being discussed. There's actually a friend of mine, a wonderful right. artist um, uh, Newman, who uh, uh, who works on a is one of the co-founders of a project called the Data Nutrition Project, and. It's literally, it's literally mm -hmm. just almost exactly this, where it's like they take the, right. the idea of, you know, how much sugar is in this percent, you know, you can't really, I mean, the analogy is a, is a wonderful one. Obviously, there's challenges with all analogies, but um, the idea at a core of just what you were saying, sort of, where did this training data come from? What, what are the, what are the constituents of it? What are the biases ingrained in that that are probably going to be represented in all outputs as well? You know what are the ways to coalesce the important critical data that um, you know these models should share with everybody using them, and then kind of you know put that label on there. Of course, labeling is always a reductive thing, and you can't capture everything. But at the same time, the concept is even just having it, even if somebody doesn't read the label, just the fact that they see that it is on there, I think makes people think a little bit differently about oh, there's something in this that I should be aware of. And, um, and that's really important. Right. So yeah, totally into that idea. I love the Data Nutrition Project. Everybody should go look that up. It's wonderful. Um, uh, there are probably other sort of similar, vaguely similar things going on. But yeah, I mean, Adobe, I, again, I, I, I uh, you know, I have all sorts of pros and cons with all the big tech companies, but Adobe doing this and making a big splash of it and, and promoting various watermarking techniques and all that is, is great. It's really great. And, um, right. you know, is it exactly the right thing at the end of the day? Is it going to be the perfect thing? Probably not, but you know, they're working on it and they're doing it and, you know, power to them. And, um, you know, the fact that they've integrated it into Photoshop in ways that can be part of digital artists workflows is, is fascinating and, and, and incredibly useful. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, I think it's still honestly, you know, I think there still might be core challenges to this stuff. You know, I don't, if I were a digital artist using Firefly generated stuff or partially Firefly generated stuff, you know, within the, whatever I'm working on, I don't know. It's hard to be totally confident in anything that you're, that you're doing now with this stuff from a legal standpoint, but 
I feel confident enough to go ahead with it. It's just, you know, we'll see what, what shakes out, but um, I'm glad people are working on it, you know, all sorts of levels. Yeah. I mean, Adobe obviously has been integrating different kind of machine learning tools into almost all their stuff, you know, like just denoising or whatever else they're doing, upscaling. And so it's really interesting to sort of think about that, that process. So, yeah. uh, well, listen, we've gone about an hour. This is fascinating stuff. There's, I'm sure a lot more that people can learn about you. Uh, uh, tell people where can they go? Where can they get more information? What, what is your website, your social media channels? What are, what are sure. some of those things? Yeah. I mean, it's all in various states of, of disarray to be honest, but, uh, halseybergun.com is my sort of artist website. Um, I have uh, uh, a website for the Roundware geolocated audio platform, which is roundware.org. And you can go there and get to the code from there if you want, um, check that out. Um, the project, the AI Nixon moon disaster project is, um, is, a, is, a, is a good representation of my recent work with AI and that's moondisaster.org. Um, and uh, you can check that out. I am on the socials, so to speak. I am not a big, uh, a big, um, you know, what do we call it? We call it Xer now. Is it, since tweet Twitter is not one. Is I it, don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't X very much, but um, you know, okay. uh, I'm still I'm on there, and I can be contacted uh, through those uh, media for sure. But I'm not a, a not a not a not not a prolific poster of those. I'm more of a not prolific consumer either. But um, I'm there on Facebook, Instagram. <laughs> You know, get me on LinkedIn. So, uh, but it's almost always either H Burgund or Halsey Burgund. I do have, I'm lucky in that my name, as far as I know, there's no other other one with both parts. So um, that's convenient. Um, Not true with Chris Nichols. I know many Chris Nichols. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, you know, but then if you do something horrible, you can just pretend it's the other Chris Nichols, right? It's true. So, it's true. It's true. I actually had a podcast with someone else named Chris Nichols on. So, so that's good. pretty good. I think Kevin <laughs> Kelly did some of that too with his Cool Tools Park podcast, or maybe maybe Keith oh, Kelly really? had on there. But there was some. It's because that obviously is a, a a fairly common name. But you know, he is right. uh, yeah, he's um, a big fan of his. But uh, that's another topic for another day. Awesome. Well, your work is really great, and I think it's really awesome that you're trying to bring awareness to the kind of things that we're doing. And obviously, AI has been like front and center on my podcast in the last several yeah, months yeah. Uh, has to be brought up all the time, which I think is perfectly fine. I think we need to bring awareness to this and bring different perspectives to this that are very important. So really glad that you're able to share yours well, as well. I really appreciate being here and the, the insightful questions and just the fact that you're doing what you're doing is, you know, it's all part of this struggle that sort of society is having with coming to grips with what these new technologies are capable of and, and what the future might bring. And I think all of this is, is really important from an awareness, et cetera, standpoint. So um, really honored to be a part and, uh, you know, with your long lineage of amazing guests. And, uh, you know, I hope this is useful for uh, your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a really well, well, it's well fitting for this podcast. So thanks for doing it, man. All right. Well, thank you so much.